Well, I want to begin with the end in mind. I want to read to you slowly Chuck Colson's eulogy for Bill Bright. Bill Bright was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and a few years ago he died. And this is what Chuck Colson had to say. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to read a few points that I think are pertinent to this section. This great spirit and trust in Christ marked not only his life, but also his death. There are countless books written on how to live the Christian life, but very few on how to die the Christian death. It is in this regard that Bill Bright made another remarkable contribution. For he not only lived well, he died well. And he remembers that over two years ago, Bill was diagnosed with a dreadful disease which attacks the lungs and they lose their elasticity. And unless the heart gives out first, death is by slow suffocation, one of the most painful ways to die. If you think about it, that is where, what the crucifixion was, was to, that they would suffocate. And so Chuck Colson says, I spoke to him a week or so ago before he died. I called to lift his spirits, but he lifted mine. He told me that these two years had been the most productive of his ministry, that he'd been able to write more, direct more projects, launch more initiatives than ever before. He kept praising God even as he was grasping for breath. And so the question is, why would God allow someone who had given over 50 years of his life to faithful ministry to die such a painful death? And one man answered this, God allows Christians and pagans to get cancer so that the world would see the difference in how Christians deal with it. I will remember Bill always for the profound influence he had on me, inspiring me not only to live well, but when it comes to die, to die well. And so you and I as believers in Jesus need to start now preparing to die well. We need to begin with the end in mind. That's from uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People where Stephen Covey would have you write a eulogy, kind of a vision of what you would want people to say. And so we need to know how to die well so that we will know how to live well. And that is what Paul talks about in Philippians 1, 12 through 26. Turn with me if you would there. Philippians 1, 12 through 26. And last week we, we asked the question, what is a joyful gospel partnership? Today it's, what's the purpose of that? If we're going to build something together, why? And what you'll see in these two sections is the idea of the proclamation of Jesus and the exaltation in Jesus, not only in how we live, but how we die. And so thus the phrase and the, the main point, let's live in such a way that we die without regret. Paul begins here in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, by the way, a joyful gospel partnership is a family ordeal. I want you to know this, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard or the praetorian guard or the palace guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so under advancing the gospel, Christ is preached that they recognize that Paul was a Christian. And here's our perspective on life and how to die well. Dying well means seeing unfavorable circumstances, not as gloomy obstacles to the gospel, but joyful opportunities for the gospel. 
The Philippians were concerned because they were financially and prayerfully supporting this uh, apostle, that he was in prison and they were wondering about him personally and they were wondering, is, is this ministry still advancing? And he says, I want you to know something. Don't be sad for me. God has opened the door for me to share the gospel. That Paul looked at his imprisonment not as an obstacle, but an opportunity for the gospel. That the unbeliever got to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Incidentally, um, when we think about proclaiming the gospel or speaking the gospel, it is not what has been erroneously said by Saint, some who, who have attributed this to St. Francis Assisi, that I preach the gospel all the time and sometimes I use words. You, it, you can't. It doesn't make any sense. The gospel is good news. It's to be proclaimed or reported. It would be like asking a reporter to tell us what's going on in this breaking news and not use words. It would be like you're watching your favorite television show and then you hear, we interrupt this regularly scheduled programming to bring you some breaking news. And then it flashes and you see this building burning and the reporter's over there with the microphone in her hand and she goes... You would be saying... Tell me. Give me something. I preach the gospel all the time and sometimes I use words. It's just false. When it calls for us, and that's what it says at the end of this section, that Christ is preached or Christ is proclaimed, it means for us, not necessarily that it's right here at the pulpit, but it's in our lives that we share verbally the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We are developing relationships with our neighbors, some of whom we don't know if they know Jesus. We've taken them cookies. They've seen how we've treated our children. They've seen us outside loving on one another. But we haven't yet spoken to them the gospel. So that doesn't count. Our lives in front of them are not going to give them the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It comes from a dinner when they sit down and they say, why are you so joyful? Or "What, what is it that you teach over there in that elementary school? I'm glad you asked. And so the unbelievers hear the good news. That's what Paul said in 12 and 13. And also in verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That the believer then spoke this good news. The unbeliever hears the good news and the believer is encouraged to speak the good news. So Paul says, don't be sad for me. This is an opportunity. The unbelievers are hearing it and brothers are more bold. They're more encouraged by my imprisonment. And then he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether by false notions or truth, 
Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Or Christ is preached, and in that I rejoice. So Paul was advancing the gospel, the good news, in any situation. And Paul looked at the gospel. Um, he even looked at the good that came from impure motives. Only that in pretense and truth, Christ is proclaimed. There are many people in the Christian church today who, who preach Christ from impure motives. And Paul would say, if the, and it, this isn't the idea that they were just kind of giving a partial truth. They were preaching the truth, but they were doing it for selfish reasons. Paul would say, Christ is still proclaimed. So this is not an endorsement just because Jesus is tagged to somebody's message that means it's right. It's got to be the true gospel. And that's what Paul rejoiced about. That he got to, in his unfavorable situation, share with people he wouldn't have gotten to share with. He got to share with, with the imperial guard. And here may be the way that Paul shared the gospel with one of the soldiers. He, w- he would begin with, now, now, who do you submit to? Who's your king? Oh, it would be King Caesar. So Caesar is your God. And that's what the term Caesar was for. Well, yeah, but, and Paul would say, really, Caesar's your God, but there's really a God bigger than Caesar. Because Caesar's just a man and Caesar's going to die. And Caesar hasn't always existed. And you, my friend, my soldier friend, who's free to walk around while I'm here in these chains, you may guard prisoners, but you're really a prisoner to sin. That you may work here, I don't know what the work hours were, that time, 8 to 5. Uh, but when you go home, you're still a prisoner to your sin. You, you are anxious about things you shouldn't be anxious about. You are, you are, if you're married, you're probably not living with your wife the way you should be. And if you've got more than one wife, you're a prisoner to that sin. You see, Caesar's not really God. There's only one God. And that you, you may be guarding prisoners, but you're a prisoner who needs to be set free from all that plagues you. And he said, you remember, you were probably about a, a youth. You remember that guy named Jesus? The one who says, I, I will uh, show you the truth and the truth shall set you free. You remember him? And the, the guard would probably say, yeah, yeah. I was just a little boy, but I remember he would go around and do all these miracles and he said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Didn't quite get it. And Paul would say, oh, well, here's what he meant by that. See, there's one God who is holy and just and, and you are sinful need of a Savior, and just because you have a high-ranking position in this army, uh, you are still lowly and in need of salvation. And that comes through Jesus Christ. Remember, He died upon the cross for your sin. Really? Yeah. And, and although I'm in chains right now, I'm completely free because I know my, my Redeemer lives. Paul would be quoting Job, but we quote... The, him, I know my Redeemer lives. Well, what do I do with that? Well, again, Caesar is not God. There is only one God. And, and we are sinful in need of a Savior. And, and, and Jesus died for your sin. He rose again for your salvation. And you must trust in Him. Yes, yes, you make Him your King. What about Caesar? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things to the Lord to the Lord. And by the way, my friend Peter, I think you've heard of him, he, he shared this with a centurion and, and just a couple of years ago during an earthquake, another Philippian jailer, one who was in a position much like you has done the same thing. That's my, maybe how 
Paul would have used that opportunity for the gospel. He didn't see it as I'm in prison. I got thrown in here because of Jesus. I'm just going to sulk. He said, what can I do to maximize my time in this unfavorable situation? Dying well means you see unfavorable situations not as gloomy obstacles, but as joyful opportunities for the gospel. And he said, in that I rejoice. And then in the second part of 18, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Another perspective is this. Dying well means that we see our eager expectation, our joyful hope, and our full confidence as grounded in, In grace, Paul goes back and he says, For I am certain that this will work out because of your prayers and the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of us got to see this on Friday. A gentleman say it so eloquently that prayer is a staggeringly glorious privilege. Prayer causes things to happen. In God's sovereign plan, He has so worked it that when we pray, things happen. Amen? They happen in Papua New Guinea, and they happen right down the street in the orchards. Prayer causes things to happen. So much so that Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that your prayers will help, and your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will turn out for my deliverance. That Paul recognized his eager expectation, his hope, and his confidence was grounded in grace through the prayers of the saints, through the power of the Spirit. And then Paul talked about his purpose in life. And today, guess what we're going to do? We're all going to memorize a verse together. Most of the versions say it just like this. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Guess what? You're going to repeat that with me. We're just It's a little lesson on Scripture memory. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's put it all together. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One more time. We have just memorized one verse together and the verse of this section. Focus on the Gospel. How do we do that? To live is Christ To die is gain. Paul wanted his entire life and even his death to magnify Jesus Christ. 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your, on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul was literally wrestling 
Just like we sing, your grace is enough. He wrestles with the sinner's heart. Paul was wrestling in his mind. This was a hard decision. I recognize I'm jail and I'm, I'm close to being with Jesus because they're going, to, they're going to sentence me to death. And when that happens, I get to be with Jesus. But he had such a vision of Jesus that he said, you know what? If I'm not going to get to be with him, I'm going to labor for others, fruitful labor for others. Paul wanted so much to be with Jesus. He thought about Jesus all the time. He thought about heaven all the time. And dare I say, and paraphrase from God is the Gospel, who, which was paraphrasing J.C. Ryle, that says there are many believers in the well professing believers in the church today who do not even think about Jesus nor love Jesus and he asked the question what are you going to do when you get to heaven because you're just going to be with Jesus if you don't love Jesus now what are you going to do in heaven Paul had such a vision for Jesus that he wanted so much to be there he thought about heaven he thought about being with Christ Incidentally, this is a, a, a way to look at death. Are, are we ready to die? By the way, when we die, Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. But John 5.24 says, Those who have trusted in Jesus has passed from judgment into eternal life. So we have no fear of death. Paul had no fear of death. I can't wait to be with Jesus. So there is no holding place for you to get more purified. And and Paul later or earlier in 2 Corinthians would have said, uh, to be absent from the body, both his physical body and the body of believers, is to be present with the Lord. A verse I used to encourage my mother when she asked about her sister, who was a believer, I said, if she's gone from her body, she's with Jesus. You have have nothing to fear. Are we ready to die? Are we living in such a way that we die without regret? Are we ready at the point of our own life that we recognize judgment is coming, but we have passed from judgment into eternal life? And are we going to die and look back and say, oh, I just wish I would have Live in such a way that you die without regret. This section is bookended by two words. Advance the gospel. You saw it in verse 12 and you see it again in 25. Don't you worry about my imprisonment because that was there for me to advance the gospel or progress the gospel. And look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. Enjoy in faith. Advance the gospel and advance the faith of Christians. That is the outline. That's, that is why join together in a, in a joyful gospel partnership. It's to be deliberate. We're advancing the gospel and we're advancing the faith of others as Christ is magnified in our life and he's magnified in our death. Now when I use that term magnified, it is not magnification where you look through a microscope and you see something really, really small. Right? 
Christ is magnified. We're not looking through a little, oh, there's Jesus. He's swimming around down there. Wrong sense of the term magnification. It's not a microscope. What is it? It's a telescope. You go, especially here, you go out on your deck, you see Castle Peak. Wow. You see the New Yorks. And at night, you put your telescope out there, north, and you look through it, and there's something so huge. You, it looks so small from a distance, but you get your telescope out there, and it just magnifies it. Wow. Paul wanted to magnify Jesus Christ in his life and magnify Him in His death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How do you do that? There are a couple of doctors in Augusta, Georgia, who've taken the high road. Uh, they graduated from med school, and instead of going into what would be typical following that path, they've started a not-for-profit hospital to help the poor in Augusta, Georgia. And the executive director of this Christians Physicians Network says this, the biggest thing is talking to students about living like the people they serve and not like the doctors who train them. And here's a quote. This is from World Magazine. It's called Soul Providers. These two doctors say, we consider ourselves well-paid missionaries and just poorly paid physicians. That's the perspective that we need to have. We're just well-paid missionaries but we, and poorly paid physicians. That's how we see our life. They're magnifying Jesus because they're putting the idea of to live as Christ and to die as gain before them. And for the longest time in my own life, I had a weird, uh, distorted perspective what does it mean to live as Christ and to die as gain? In my own life, it's, I gotta, it's, it's about sharing the gospel. It's about reading the Bible. It's about and just, and just limiting to just certain little events. And then I would see irritations come in because my own little kingdom is being disrupted. And I, I, I was pleased with my little activities but didn't have a perspective bigger and myself. There's a, there's a book out there called A Quest for More. And I hope that we go through it as a church. I'm going to go through it my own, on my own. I want to just read you this. And I'm reading it to you because it says something that I can't articulate. And it says it so well. It says, you and I were created for more than just filling our schedules with the self-satisfying pursuits of personal pleasure. Is that not American? Self-satisfying pursuits of personal pleasure. We are meant to do more than to make sure all of our needs are fulfilled and all of our desires are satisfied. Bold sentence. We were never meant to be self-focused little kings ruling minuscule little kingdoms. Sure, and the author's anticipating what's going through your minds, it's right for you to care about your health, your job, your house, your investments, your family, and your friends. It would be irresponsible to act if none of those things mattered. 
Yet it is a functional human tragedy to live only for those things. And so he asked the question, how about you? And I would ask the question, how about you? What is the big vision you're working towards? What is the big dream you're investing in? What is the definition of the good life? And how do you know if you've reached it? I'm afraid there are many people of the faith who have attended church each week, give regularly to God's work, know their Bible pretty well, and don't live overtly evil lives. But they've settled for below and less when we're created to be above and more. The mistake is that they've made is that they shrunk their Christianity to the size of their own lives. Paul didn't do that, did he? It wasn't shrunk to the size of my own little life. I'm in my own little cell and I'm worried about my own little self. He says, while I'm here, I'm going to maximize my time and I'm going to encourage the people who supported me and in, in, in an indirect way got me where I am. He ends this section with this. God's grace cuts a hole in your self-built prison and invites you to step into something so huge, so significant, that only one word can adequately capture it. Glory. Glory. You and I have been hardwired for glory, ultimately God's glory. Amen? We've been hardwired for something transcendent above ourselves. That's why at the end of the game, some of you were excited that the dunk came and it just slammed home a 14-point victory for that team to go to the Western Conference Finals. Because the language you use is, we won. You didn't win. You didn't play. It would be like, say the Eagles made it to the Super Bowl. There were people in this room who say, we are going to the Super Bowl. Really? You're getting on a... Well, no, but we're part of something bigger. It's like when we see in the Olympics, it's when we watch the Olympics, it's the display of human glory in athletics that we see those gymnasts do what they do and we just go, wow. Or the divers dive in and there's no splash. And for just a minute, we step back and we go, wow. Never do you see, if you're watching, say, the animal planet, penguins jump off into the ice and you've got another little penguin over there with headset on. Well, we're going to give them a 9.3 for that, but the uh, splash was a little high. You never see that. We were made different in the image of God. Some of you are laughing. It's not going to happen, I promise you. That's why we go to museums and we look at the art work of those famous men, the Monets, and we go, wow. Just for a second, we, we transcend. We're above and beyond ourselves. And the greatest thing is for us to live not for, for our own glory, but something outside ourselves for God's glory. It's above us. It is saying, and here's what I'm not asking you to do. I've got to give up everything and I've got to sell my house and I've got to go over here because then I'll be living for God's glory. No, it's about doing everything you're doing right now for God's glory. It's a new perspective and a new approach on life for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So I'm not going to go change everything uh, I'm doing and leave that my circle of influence, I'm just going to go back into my circle of influence and think through what I'm doing. It is, it is the, the 
person in the workforce who says, I'm not going to work on this specific day or I'm not going to do these things because the bigger purpose of my life is not tied to my job. Amen? It's about the father who says, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take this day off or I'm going to, do the, to come home at this time when I could put more time in this because there are children there, there's a wife there, something bigger than myself. It is about the, the mother who doesn't just see there's one more poopy diaper to change. And there's yelling going on. It's about discipleship. It's about the couple who will get away and not waste their time with trivial things, but they'll say, how are you doing? It's about a church who will not just be satisfied with Money's coming in. There's a certain amount of attendance. So what is our influence? Let's live in such a way that we die without regret. You've heard it over and over again. It's the, it's the old saying, you never get to your deathbed saying, I wish I would have done, or you know, I wish, I'm glad I had all these toys and trucks and snowmobiles in this part of the country. It's, I wish I would have spent more time doing X. And you fill it in. You've heard it before. To live as Christ, to die as gain. How do you do it? Number one, dying well means seeing unfavorable situations. Whatever that situation is, is not gloomy obstacles. Oh, it's, this is an interruption to my schedule when often God gives us His schedule, which looks like an interruption to our schedule. It's an opportunity for the gospel. Dying well means seeing our eager expectation, our joyful hope, and that full courage is grounded in grace. That we are fully responsible for our lives, but it begins by the power of the Spirit through the prayer of His people. And so we're to be a witness to unbelievers, and we're to be a witness to believers did you remember what Paul said? He, he said, and even the brothers, they're more confident because of me. We always think witnessing is just, I've got to go talk to an unbeliever. But yes, when you do that, you're encouraging those who already know Jesus. And that Paul, in this final one, dying well means our readiness to die and be with Jesus is only surpassed because we get to stay here and advance the faith of other believers. Further the faith of others. Paul said, I, I, if I live, it's going to be fruitful labor for you. That your progress and joy in the faith. See where you're getting... Last week it was, I make my prayer with joy. Joyful gospel partnership. And here this week, it is my joy to advance the faith of others. And so that's what we're called to do as a church, to live in such a way our entire lives. I'm asking you not to change one thing in what you do. Just think about a new approach to a perspective 
Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I coaching a soccer team? It's to be a witness in the community. Yes, we want to win. It would be, it would be like people say, oh, why do you play golf? I mean, can't you just play to have fun? You play golf to get a par. If you're not playing golf, right, to get a par, you're not playing golf. You're just out walking around, hacking up a night, perfectly good course. You want to win. But above and beyond golf or coaching is to be a witness in the community. So for me, if I'm playing golf with some unbelievers and I wank a shot, slice. Now, what's the witness? Do I throw my club down? Do I speak in such a way that they go, this is the pastor? Or do I go, it's all good. I just wanted to see that part of the course. It's a beautiful creation that God's given us here. Right, gentlemen? I'm just going to go that way for about five strokes. But to bring it all home, it's about us joining together a partnership. There's a sacrificial community built upon a supernatural love for the gospel to do something, that we would live as a church in such a way that we die without regret, that we would look back and you picture yourself on a hospital bed like Bill Bright and have no regrets. I spent my life for Jesus. I, I loved my wife. I raised my kids. I worked hard. We spent time together. Our neighbors knew what we stood for. We saw people come to know the Lord. We encouraged other believers in the Lord. And at the end of the day, I didn't have this, this, and this. But I'm ready to meet Jesus. I've lived in such a way that I've died without regret. Father, we recognize to be this deliberate in our lives will take a work of you in our hearts. That we aren't self-focused little kings in our minuscule little kingdoms focusing only on what we are about. But that we would have a bigger, broader perspective. That our investment of a few hours in one week in the lives of little kids goes a lot further than we may ever see. That our investment in precious time, 20 minutes to an hour, talking with our spouse and our children and our neighbors. We may never see it, Lord, but it's a part of something bigger. Help us through the preaching of Your Word and the study of Your Scriptures gain this big picture of who You are, what You're about, and help us, Lord, to see our lives as ambassadors of the King and that everything we do from our driving to our speaking to our cooking to our cleaning that we might say with Paul for to me to live as Christ to die as gain. We ask these things so that Christ would be glorified in our lives magnified, made big. In Jesus' name, amen.